young mother killed in a Coquitlam parkade. We can confirm she was returning or completing work. So she works in the area there. What we're learning about the victim and where the investigation stands. Controversy at Surrey City Hall. Please come out and defend why you don't think the public should have a voice. A brazen move to shut down ethics investigations. And BC's pandemic two years in. I didn't think we would be on this phase of the journey for this long, but it is the reality that we have to accept. The hope restrictions might ease next month and what the longer-term future looks like. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with the latest on a fatal stabbing in Coquitlam that has left three children without their mother and the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team issuing an urgent appeal for tips. Our Ahmad Agahi is live near the scene where it happened. Ahmad, the victim was just 32 years old and investigators have now taken the unusual step of releasing her photograph. Yeah, Sophie, and I think it speaks to the urgency of the investigation and how critical it may be for those homicide investigators to hear from new witnesses from the area where this shocking murder happened in Coquitlam's Austin Avenue near Marmont Street. And perhaps people who were familiar with the victim and what may be happening in her life prior to its tragic end. Hey guys, welcome to my beautiful family home. I'm Ramina Shah, the newest member of Team Zuber and Associates. This is 32-year-old Romina Shah. She was found by police, stabbed and badly injured yesterday afternoon in a parking lot in Coquitlam here at Austin Avenue near Marmont Street. She was rushed to hospital, but sadly she could not be saved. The attack happened in an area where police say she worked. Uh, there is a real estate agency located here, and on social media, Shah identified herself as a realtor. A realtor. She is from Maple Ridge, according to homicide investigators. And uh, here's an important point. Without going into specifics, police did say that information gathered already at the scene suggests this is not a random incident. At this time, I can confirm that the victim, Ramina Shah, has no ties to the ongoing uh, gang conflict. This is not related to that, and there's no ties to criminal activity. We did receive some background information from other witnesses and people that know her. And that information with combination with things we've seen at scene lead us to believe this is an isolated incident and not random. All right, Ahmad, there are a number of cameras in that area, so I'm sure police will be looking for uh, any video surveillance. What are investigators saying about a potential suspect? Well, police were asked about that today. They say there is no suspect. They do not have anybody in custody and are not ready to have a description of who they may be looking for out as well. Uh, it seems like the strategy in what is now a very public investigation is that appeal for witnesses, for those that are associates or friends of the victim, and also dash cam video from anyone who was driving on Austin Avenue yesterday afternoon between 2.30 and 5.30 in the afternoon. So. All right, thanks for that. Amadagahi reporting for us in Coquitlam. IHIT has confirmed today a family member is responsible for a tragedy in Richmond this week. Four people were found dead in a home in the 4500 block of Garden City Road on Monday. Investigators confirm the victims are from a single family, a 71-year-old father, a 58-year-old mother, and two adult children aged 23 and 21. And while IHIT says this does not appear to be an incident of partner violence, preliminary findings 
findings suggest one of the family members was the shooter. Investigators say the factors leading up to this shooting are still being determined. Now to a surprising and controversial move in Surrey. City Council will vote next week on suspending ethics investigations until after next October's election. As Catherine Urquhart reports, opponents are concerned Mayor Doug McCallum may try to stonewall a probe into a potential conflict of interest. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum is already facing a criminal charge of public mischief. Now there's a new controversy at Surrey City Hall. An effort is underway to suspend future investigations by the Ethics Commissioner. This is ridiculous because you've got a mayor in Doug McCallum who's facing a criminal public mischief charge eliminating the possibility of any Surrey citizen making an ethics complaint. I mean, it doesn't get stinkier than that. On the agenda at this Monday's council meeting is a bylaw amendment. It asks for the ethics commissioner to suspend all complaints and investigations launched after January 31st until the next election is over. What is the real reason behind Mayor McCallum and his team trying to push through really silence the community. In September, the Surrey Police Vote campaign filed a complaint against McCallum, making several allegations. Clearly, we have at Surrey Police Vote an ethics complaint against Mayor Doug McCallum over conflict of interest, over his indemnification for the legal fees for his criminal charges, and now that could be put in grave doubt. McCallum is due in court February 22nd on a public mischief charge after claiming his foot was run over. He said the car was driven by a woman canvassing signatures to keep the RCMP in Surrey. She pulled out and and turned right. She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off. McCallum's group holds the majority on council, so the bylaw amendment is expected to pass. And that's the troubling part because, look, we still got another eight, nine months before a municipal election here. Surrey's Ethics Commissioner, Reese Harding, told Global News that, for now, he won't be commenting. Doug McCallum also declined to comment. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. It has been two years since BC's very first case of COVID-19. Since then, we have been through five waves and a roller coaster of restrictions. Now, going into our third year of the pandemic, the province is offering a glimmer of hope for those eager to get back to a more normal way of life. Richard Zussman has more. This is where we were then. Late yesterday, we had um, our first case of a novel coronavirus. And this is where we are now. We followed public health guidance, we flattened the curves, and that has saved lives. For two years, the province has largely been holding the public's hand through COVID-19 decision-making. We have been on an incredibly arduous and long journey. And no, I didn't think we would be on this phase of the journey for this long. But it is the reality that we have to accept. There have been COVID ups and downs, but the province is confident transmission from this fifth wave is now going down. And it's time to let go of that hand. As we move through this phase, the extraordinary measures will change. And we're looking now towards the middle of February and Family Day when we can start to get back to doing some more things again. With minimal testing capacity and almost no contact tracing, the BC CDC is advising most people to consider how they manage other illnesses with no test, like cold and flu, when managing... 
This, coupled with hospital stays linked to the virus being less severe and shorter, is leading the path away from restrictions. Looking at Family Day as a time to start getting back to not opening things up completely because we know, and we've seen that around the world, that when you do things precipitously, you can get a rebound that can be um, really um, hard on people. An acknowledgement from the province that COVID-19 will be with us for a long time, if not forever. And although there will be cycles of infections, there may not be cycles of restrictions. New variants will surely emerge. Immunity will wane, whether that's from infection or from vaccination. And we know that there's a seasonality. And next fall will bring the increased risk of transmission again especially concerning for those who are over the age of 80 or immunocompromised, or both, with a higher likelihood of severe infection. We reinforce the importance that each of us does around reducing risk in, in our own family, in, for ourselves, for our family, our community. So as each of us gets vaccinated, it makes a difference. A difference for those ready to move on, but not much of a difference for those not quite there. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, youth sports tournaments will be allowed to resume play next week after being temporarily banned to try to stop the spread of the Omicron variant. As of Tuesday, February 1st, the ban on sports tournaments for kids and youth will be lifted. But the group BC School Sports says the Ministry of Education is still prohibiting all sports tournaments between schools. Adult sports tournaments will also remain prohibited. Health officials have also changed the proof of vaccination requirement for 12-year-olds so that they only require one dose of vaccine on the vaccine card. There have been reports of 11-year-olds with one dose being blocked when they turn 12 and haven't yet been able to get their second dose. All right, let's take a look at today's COVID-19 numbers. We have 990 people in hospital. 141 of those patients are in the ICU. There have been nine more deaths from complications of the virus, and there are currently 30,515 active cases in BC. 2,137 of those cases are new. Let's bring in Keith Baldry uh, for more on that trip down memory lane today. There have been 276 <laughs> briefings, Keith. You've been at I think every single one of them or almost every single one of them? Yeah, so I've been at almost every one of them. Wasn't that the first uh, couple? I want to show you something here. So, so these are my pandemic notebooks. This covers uh, all the cases, all the information since day one of the briefing. Two years ago today was the first one. It's been a long, strange journey is how I'll put it, and we're not through with it yet. Yeah, for sure. Some um, uh, uh, memories going back to the... <laughs> The first couple of years and when we had those briefings every single day and now uh, yeah. definitely they've they've tailed off a bit. But all right. Uh, give us some context around our numbers, particularly the high hospitalization number. Yeah, it's very interesting when we compare where we, how we're doing with other provinces. Again, the hospitalizations are approaching almost 1,000 concurrently. We're not quite there, 990 today. Uh, and number of deaths have gone up recently as well. But take a look at some of the slides released today, how BC compares to the other five largest provinces. BC's on the bottom there among the daily hospitalizations. We're cons considerably behind Manitoba at the very top, surprisingly, but also Quebec and others ahead of us on a daily basis. Hospitalization's an important indicator, of course, 
course with COVID-19. So are the number of people who die from COVID-19 or with or from COVID-19. Again, BC there, the red line on the bottom. We're doing better than the other provinces when it comes to COVID-19 related deaths. These are seven day moving averages. And these are per capita uh, statistics. So based for every 100,000 members of your population. So BC continues to do well in two of the most important indicators, which is another a big reason you heard in Richard's story why we're moving to easing restrictions going forward, learning to live with the virus at a safer level. Mm -hmm. All right, protect those notebooks, Keith. I want to take yes. a look at them one day. <laughs> All right, thanks, Keith Baldry and Victoria. Well, while there might be a sense that the worst of the Omicron variant and the pandemic in general could soon be behind us, the situation is still serious in long-term care homes. Jordan Armstrong has the so sobering numbers and the ongoing criticism of the B.C. government's handling of the crisis. For two years, long-term care has been the epicenter of COVID-19 in this country. Two years into the pandemic, most seniors in care have been vaccinated and boosted. But despite the extra layers of protection and restrictions, the situation inside care homes seems to be no less serious. Age continues to be the biggest risk factor. About 40% of the people who've died in this month um, have been related to uh, outbreaks in long-term care. Across the country over the last two years, more than 16,000 seniors in care have died from COVID-19. Right now, more than 30% of all care homes across the country are dealing with Omicron. In B.C., despite strict measures in place surrounding staff and visitations, there are currently dozens of outbreaks. There has been little evidence of family visits as sources for outbreaks. Advocates say more needs to be done to end the isolation. I've always been pretty upset with how B.C. has handled essential caregivers because, you know, unlike Ontario, we managed to get an essential caregiver policy with two people that have access even during the outbreaks. And it is ridiculous to me that your government has not done that for these families. During the Omicron wave, B.C. has allowed for essential visitation, but there is no guarantee every resident qualifies. National standards for long-term care were introduced this week in Ottawa. Researchers say more needs to be done to ensure the rights of residents are respected. Researchers add essential visitors is one area where families and patients have not been consulted. Really where we are sort of falling behind is having the essential visitors and social visits restarted. Families and residents have been really shut out of that conversation. The average life expectancy of someone in long-term care is only about 18 months. Once COVID has passed Canada by, experts say there needs to be a shift in the sector to put more care in long-term care. Jordan Armstrong. A multi-million dollar lawsuit has been launched against some prominent Métis leaders. The Métis National Council is making serious claims against some of the group's own former top officials, involving accusations of financial wrongdoing in the millions of dollars, where the money was supposed to go and where it allegedly went instead. Next on the News Hour. Burnaby officially backs a gondola to SFU. What needs to happen next to make it a reality? Still to come on the news hour. Also tonight, Mango, the missing cat, and how she was finally reunited with her family 10 months later. Right now, though, the Métis National Council has filed a lawsuit in Ontario court making shocking accusations against former officials with the organization. There are allegations of corruption and unapproved expenses. As Paul Johnson reports, also named in that lawsuit a number of consulting firms, including a B.C. company. 
So the Métis National Council represents many thousands of Métis people across Canada and here in B.C. And here we have a situation where the new leadership is suing the previous leadership after they say they got a look at the books and discovered some serious financial wrongdoing. The lawsuit was filed Thursday in Ontario Supreme Court. The Métis National Council claims its previous leaders had wrongfully used their positions to enrich themselves and their friends and took advantage of the pandemic to avoid scrutiny as they undermined the very organization they were supposed to be building up. Among the eye-opening claims are $9 million from Ottawa that was supposed to go to a Métis veterans program. More than a million dollars in lump sum payments they say were made to a number of outside consulting firms. $800,000 in what they say were severance payments made to themselves. A $4,000 gold watch for one of them and a $13,000 a month salary for one of their wives. Cassidy Karen is the new president of the Métis National Council. Almost immediately, my eyes were opened to some in my opinion, very concerning governance and financial practices and policies, or rather an apparent lack thereof. The review uncovered agreements, contracts, and consulting arrangements that may be questionable in nature. Now, some of the defendants are well-known in national politics. Here's David Chartrand with Prime Minister Trudeau. Here's what he had to say about the lawsuit Friday. It's obviously a deflection that's uh, trying to... Uh take away from the real issue that's at stake in between our nation right now, uh, where the uh, provinces and presidents have all agreed to uh, allow Ontario to bring all of these new non-Métis into our nation. And there's also a B.C. angle to this story. One of these consulting groups that allegedly received money is a company called the Public Policy Nexus Consulting Group, run by a man, in corporation papers say, is called John Weinstein. We talk to people familiar with this case, and they say Weinstein is known as somebody who's worked with the Métis in the past, but it's not known exactly what his company did to get the 300 grand. It's also worth pointing out that none of these allegations have been tested or proven in court. Paul Johnson, Global News. Coming up, a teen with autism attacked in the street. No kid deserves this. A minor. It's not right. How an evening walk took a terrifying turn. Also tonight, aiming for Ottawa, the convoy converging on the capital city later. Big delays over here for southbound traffic at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge after just clearing a minor crash at mid-span. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. A Surrey father and son are speaking out tonight after the teen who has autism was attacked. As Neetu Garcha reports, the 16-year-old victim says the assault happened after a man accused him of a crime he didn't commit. Then I uh, went on and to see him. He was bleeding from his face. Struggling to talk through the emotions, a Surrey father is speaking out about what he says is a random assault on his son who has autism. No kid deserves this. A minor. It's not right. We've agreed not to name the father and to conceal his 16-year-old's identity as they fear for the teen's safety following the attack that left him bleeding and requiring dental work. I could have died that night. 
It happened on 85A Avenue near 144th Street at about 6.15 Wednesday evening when the teen says he was walking on the sidewalk and a man pulled up in a car and started to accuse him of stealing from a vehicle. I'm just explaining to him, I'm doing nothing wrong, and he literally punches me and I'm on the floor already and he keeps punching me over and over again and he kicks me in the stomach and then he picks me back up and then he knocks me down again and then he pulls out his phone and starts filming me and he, uh, he tells me to admit what I did wrong on camera. I was so confused. I thought the guy was joking at first when he, when he got out of the car. He says the suspect eventually walked away only after uttering a threat. That if he sees, ever sees me again, he'll, I'll get the bullet in the back of my head. I'll get a bullet in the back of my head. And he says it happened on what had been his regular walking route for the last six months. Now he says he's afraid to even leave his home, let alone go for a walk by himself. Actions like this are completely unacceptable, which is why our investigators are working hard to continue to gather evidence in order to be able to submit a report to Crown Counsel and bring this before the courts. If he really thought like I did something wrong, I don't know why he didn't help, help like hold me for the cops. It doesn't seem like the right thing to do just to let me go if I if he thought I was doing something wrong. Police confirm it was the victim's family who called 911 and reported the incident just before 7 p.m. A 26-year-old man has been arrested and ahead of a later court date has been released on conditions. Some of those conditions are in place to uh, protect the victim as well as uh, be able to monitor this individual. I feel that this, uh, this, provo- this was provoked because my son's color. It's all I can say. I, I don't know what else would have provoked this. Neetu Garja, Global News, Surrey. Police on Vancouver Island are releasing a vehicle description in the disappearance of a father and daughter. The public is being asked to look out for a grey 2005 four-door Honda Civic sedan with a BC license plate HL1-11E that uh, Jesse Bennett is believed to be driving. The vehicle has distinct Christianity-focused stickers on the back. Bennett and his seven-year-old daughter, Violet, were reported missing from their Cowichan area home last Sunday. Bennett was ordered to return Violet to her mother as part of a joint custody agreement. RCMP say they don't believe Violet is in danger, but they do want to return her to her mother. Up next, truckers take on Ottawa. Canada's capital braces for the convoy. Why police are preparing for all possibilities. Plus. It's very bad news for anyone who needs an actual physical exam. Another medical clinic closes its doors. Why some say a doctor shortage is not the real issue. Traffic is steady in both directions tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge with just some leftover volume on the east-west connector through Richmond. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Centre. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Some of the first protesters involved in the cross-Canada truck convoy have arrived in Ottawa and more are on their way for the main protest Saturday. Global's chief political correspondent David Aiken has more on what's expected. There are six separate convoys coming from different regions of the country. Some are here, some are on their way here. They're all very noisy. Police tell us that they're expecting about a thousand vehicles, maybe 250 trucks, coming from southern Ontario and from western Canada. Another 200 vehicle convoy from Atlantic Canada, an unknown number on their way from Quebec. They're coming here for the weekend. The first big day of protest will be tomorrow. Ostensibly, they're here to protest against vaccine mandates for truckers who want to cross the border. 
but when we were talking to people today, we found grievances for any number of things, from overthrowing global capitalism to certainly overthrowing the government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. There's a lot of grievances here. The question for the police is how to keep things peaceful. They are talking to the captains of those six convoys. They say there's good communication with those captains, and they're all hoping it can be peaceful. But what the police are worried about is parallel protests, counter-protests, the X factor. Police have been seeing things online, talking about trying to make this into a January 6th event, and they're trying their best to make sure that that doesn't happen. But the bottom line for police is really right now, they're anxious because they don't know. They don't know how many are going to be here. They don't know how long they're going to stay, and they don't know if they'll remain peaceful. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. Well, hundreds of people will soon join the list of the thousands without a family doctor in Greater Victoria as another medical clinic plans to close its doors permanently, the third in as many weeks. Kylie Stanton has more on the blow to health care in the capital region and why one expert says the problem is not a lack of doctors. Another day, another clinic announcing it's shutting its doors adding hundreds of patients to the estimated 100,000 in Greater Victoria without primary care. It leaves people in dangerous situation. Not being able to see a doctor in a timely manner is potentially deadly. The James Bay Medical Treatment Clinic is the third in as many weeks to go this route. This Callwood Clinic and two doctors at Eagle View also getting ready to close their practices. We feel like we've exhausted ourselves to try to make it work and it's just, it's just not. I'm going to look into your left eye now. But the problem isn't the lack of physicians. Experts say there's a growing trend among doctors opting to practice medicine online. Just going to tighten for a minute there. Exhausted and overworked, they're moving away from the fee-for-service model. Instead, increasingly drawn to large corporations, offering mostly online services. You put all this together and you have an exodus. So uh, I would be really interested in hearing... Uh, Mr. Dix, explain what their plan is. Obviously, um, there are significant challenges. BC's health minister agrees. The way primary care services have been historically organized and delivered is not working. And change is underway, moving towards a team-based primary care strategy. So that's the work that's happening now. There is a significant initiative in place. Clearly more needs to be done, and we're acting on that. But the opposition says recruitment and retention is key. And the longer that takes, the more patients could fall through the cracks. And we know that people are very frightened about whether or not they're going to get the care that they need and deserve in British Columbia. In the meantime, it's expected more closures are on the way. This one wasn't the first and likely won't be the last. This is crumbling, and it's crumbling very fast. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A happy update now on a story we've been following for the past week. A teenage boy from Fort St. John has finally undergone surgery at BC Children's Hospital. We first told you about Devin Gallant last week. The teen has been living with spinal muscular atrophy since he was three, and his scoliosis had started to threaten other organs. Surgery to insert rods into his back had been scheduled and cancelled four times over six weeks to help ease the burden on the health care system during the Omicron wave. Well, late this afternoon, Devin's mother confirmed on Facebook he is now out of surgery and everything went well.
Just ahead, a, Bur a Burnaby Mountain gondola gets the blessing of Burnaby Council. If it's built, we believe that it will really assist us in achieving those climate change goals. What has to happen next to build the Skyride to SFU? Plus, the cat came back thanks to technology and tattooing. The happy reunion 10 months later. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. In a big green light for TransLink's proposed gondola at SFU, Burnaby Council has endorsed the multi-million dollar project that would move people up the mountain in record time. The city says it chose the most environmentally friendly route. But as John Waugh reports, some locals aren't keen on the potential overhead intrusion. There's thinking outside the box when it comes to transit. And then there's putting the box up in the sky all the way up Burnaby Mountain. And we can get people uh, with this technology, um, we can get thousands of people up and onto the mountain um, within an hour. Touted as a solution to increased traffic and countless cars and buses getting stuck on the hill every time it snows. Fast, frequent and reliable service. A proposed Burnaby Mountain gondola is much closer to takeoff with City Council endorsing it as a way to meet climate goals. We have to take every opportunity to get uh, cars off the road, buses off the road. Residents were given three options up to Burnaby Mountain. The majority going for the quickest and most direct route. A straight 2.7 kilometer line from Production Way University Station to SFU Exchange. That has an estimated travel time of six minutes, almost twice as fast as the other options. That route garnering overwhelming support at 85%. The other two routes that, that, that we looked at really had a very negative environmental uh, consequences to them. There are some who are less than thrilled about the idea of looking up and seeing gondola cabins climb above their complexes once every minute at peak times. We'd be looking at a continuous you know, invasion of our you know, right to live a quiet life. Council says it will push for compensation for residents most affected by changes overhead. They are noisy, and uh, that noise right now will be directed at us. The next hill to climb is making it a priority for the B.C. Mayor's Council and securing the estimated $210 million in funding from upper levels of government. This is one of the best business cases for uh, a TransLink project um, that's ever been put forward. Despite this major step forward, supporters of the project are being told not to get their hopes too high. There's still a long way to go. John Hua, Global News. All right, Christy Gordon is here now with a look at our weather forecast. Uh, another lovely uh, day, I think. I heard there was sunshine. I saw it somewhere. <laughs> You worked too hard, Sophie. Yes, it was a lovely day. A nice way to finish off a work week, that's for sure. But we can't forget we are still in winter and we have a slight chance of some snow off in the distance, which I'll show you. First, though, it was all about the sunrise and sunset today. I don't know what you would call it when both the reds or both the sunrise and sunset was red. Uh, this is a shot from earlier today. Thank you to Rob for that one. And this is uh, through the evening hours from Coldstream. Uh, we still are getting lots of photos of this frost hair or uh, hair ice. 
or frost flower. Um, some people actually call it frost beard. And today I found out something new. It doesn't always grow in plants that are actually in the ground. They actually sometimes grow in logs or stumps that are starting to decompose. And in those types of uh, uh, logs that are getting this frost hair, you sometimes get a bit of fungus. And it's that fungus that makes the ice, when it gets pushed out of the log, uh, it makes it actually grow into that sort of hair-like form. Some people even call it frost beard and certainly looks like it. All right, flow aloft, starting to become more westerly. What does that mean? Well, it means rain for our region. So the rain across the northern regions right now, shifting down into our region, Vancouver Island, we'll see it tomorrow afternoon. And for our region, we'll start to see it late afternoon towards the evening hours. Certainly overnight into Sunday morning, we'll see that rainfall, but it should be drier by Sunday afternoon. Windy and wet across the north coast, not yet wet across the southern interior. You will see a change though on Sunday. For our region, the change occurs tomorrow. So increasing cloud, majority of the day should be dry, but by the dinner time hours, we should start to see that rainfall taking us into our Sunday morning and Wednesday, Sophie. That's the time when we have a slight chance at this point, way off still, but this is a heads up of some snowfall. In the meantime, tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Nanaimo. Gil Ross sending us that and this looks exactly as I was talking about some people call it frost beard or um, beard ice well it sure looks like it in my opinion on this one oddly enough it looks like a candy I used to eat a long time ago all right thanks Christy <laughs> now to a reunion 10 months in the making got the phone call from the owner and she was in tears she said I'm sure I'm certain this is my cat it's been missing for 10 months and we just really like to make sure that that we have a chance to get him back. A Vernon vet tech had noticed Mango the cat running around near her home. The orange tabby appeared to be in distress, so the woman got in touch with the Humane Society and brought the animal into a local vet. Thanks to the power of social media and a faded tattoo, Mango was quickly reunited with his owners. So it just really shows the importance of microchipping, tattooing, uh, microchipping is even better, and the data from the microchip is excellent, uh, whereas tattoos sometimes fade or get um, or are not deciphered correctly. The Humane Society says Mango was found just 10 minutes away from where he went missing. Its owner says he is still adjusting to being back at home with his sisters. Well, sibling rivalry, maybe that's why he left in the first place, just needed some time alone. Well, he's had his time. Now he's back. It happens. Everything will be good. Um, uh, hi, what's hi. going on? Well, uh, the Vancouver Canucks will play in Calgary tomorrow. Now, last night they were in Winnipeg. And Spencer Martin was very good. A game for the Canucks. Got his first ever NHL win. But today, all the goalies were back for Bruce Boudreaux. Goaltending has never been our problem since I've been here. And that means Thatcher Demko is back practicing and will soon be playing, maybe even tomorrow against Calgary. Also ahead, it's Friday. More cats, that's right, you know what that means. Oh, satellite debris. They seem solemn. So no Vanny Sartini clips for us today? I'm sorry, there is no Vanny today. I'll tell you why, though. Uh, because, unfortunately, he has come down with COVID. 
Now, we have heard that Vanny Sartini has mild symptoms, which obviously is good. But the MLS protocols say he has to be away from Whitecaps training camp for at least a week. You know, it's upsetting, and we hope the best for Vanny. We hope it doesn't, you know, affect him too much, and we hope that he has a speedy recovery. But, yeah, this is still around. It's still real, and this could still, you know, affect a lot of people and a lot of people's lives. So we just hope that everybody continues to stay safe and to take all the precautions necessary. Now, as good as Spencer Martin has been as the temp in goal for the Vancouver Canucks, both Thatcher Demko and Yaroslav Halak are back from COVID protocol. And tomorrow against Calgary, it's likely one of these two is going to guard the net with Martin going back to being the third option in goal for Vancouver. Things are about to get back to normal. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you'd like to get uh, our guys going back uh, and getting back into it. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, Marty did a you know, a better than average job, a better than super job. He was outstanding. And, uh, um, but I mean, Demko has been outstanding and, and the games Halak has been in, they've been great. Goaltending has never been our problem since I've been here, but you know, we'd like to get back to our two guys uh, and uh, hopefully we'll see how they both came out of practice today and how they're feeling. And, and we'll know uh, tomorrow morning, which one's going to play. Canada's 2-0 win over Honduras last night kept us in first place in the CONCACAF World Cup qualifying tournament with five games to go. And even though Honduras is last in the tournament, winning there was a huge obstacle to overcome for Canada. It's the first time we have won a game in Honduras since 1985, before most of the players on last night's Canadian team were even born. The win last night also came 10 years after Canada's humiliating 8-1 loss in Honduras probably the lowest point ever for our men's program. But a goal like this one by Jonathan David shows just how far Canada has improved since 2012. You know, watching Johnny on that transition and, and the goal that he scored, I mean, it was just, that was special. I mean, that's, I think that's what this team is. It can balance it out. It can grind, it can defend, it can hit teams on the counter-attack. And on other days, it can play. Next up is the game against the Americans on Sunday in Hamilton. It'll be similar to the game in Edmonton against Mexico. It'll be cold and played on a hard and slippery artificial turf. I think uh, the important thing for us, you know, Canadians have grown up on plastic pitches, many of them, in right. cold conditions. And, you know, these boys, they expect that now. About DNA, it's part of this story, the journey. I just feel like that, that Hamilton Stadium, it's going to feel tight and compact. I played England there with the women's team. I remember beating them 1-0 and it was a good atmosphere, like a real good energy in the stadium and it felt tight. And we want the U.S. to feel that. The BC Lions signed receiver Brian Burnham to a new one-year contract, which means they'll have both Lucky Whitehead and Brian Burnham together for Nathan Rourke, who will be the starting quarterback this coming season to throw to. And Burnham said today that one of the reasons he decided to stay with the BC Lions is Nathan Rourke. Rourke being the quarterback and especially being named the starter uh, was a big motivation for me to come back. It's not very often a veteran becomes that impressed with a rookie, but that's what happened last year. Brian Burnham couldn't help but notice Nathan Rourke was willing to do everything that he needed to do to become a better quarterback which of course means Burnham will get lots of chances to catch the ball from him. We saw him in training camp, 
you know, it'd be after practice and he's on the field pulling the sled or getting some extra work in. And you're like, man, I wonder how long that's going to last. And it lasted all season, uh, every single day. You know, first first guy in, last guy out, competing with Mike to be the first guy in, last guy out. And Burnham also saw potential in Rourke when he had to start the Lions opening game last season against Saskatchewan because of a Michael Riley injury. You know, I remember uh, being in the huddle during a TV timeout and music was playing in the stadium. And I look up at Rourke to kind of see, you know, I like to look in people's eyes to kind of get a feel for, for what they're thinking. And man, he just... He just had that fire in his eyes. He was sitting there dancing, and he just looked like he was ready to go. And from that moment, I was like, yeah, this guy, I can play with this guy. All right, there you go. Well, don't go away, Squire. You I have won't. a job to do. I know. Right after this. Okay. Satellite debris. Stay with us. Well, if you've got some talking animals, I'm in. I know. I know you love the talking animals. <laughs> These ones don't move their mouths, so really you're just sort of, you know, hearing what they're thinking. But if basically. they're sarcastic and... Oh, most definitely. Then I'm in. Okay. Okay, so here we go. We, we, there's various versions of this commercial, the deer kitten commercial, but here's another one that includes a mirror. You'll see what I mean. Dear Kitten, I've been meaning to tell you, there's this one window in the house that's lower than all of the other windows, and it's very weird. There are these cats that live on the other side of it, and apparently now a dog, too. In the beginning, it was not friendly, more of a standoff, but I tried to break the ice. I said, who are you and what's your name? And you know what? He said exactly the same thing at the same time. It was like we read each other's mind. And here's the kicker. We have exactly the same name. How weird is that? In any case, over time it's gotten a bit annoying. You know, I bathe myself, so does he. I jump, he jumps. It got to the point where I just said, stop copying me. And you know what's crazy? He said exactly the same thing. And all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, maybe I'm the one who's copying him. You know, is there such a thing as free will? Where do our poops go when they disappear from the litter box? I don't know. My mind was blown. In any case, I wanted to warn you about these cats that just copy us constantly. There should be a word for that. Impersonic cat? Mimic kitty? I don't know. Why didn't we ever come up with Mimic kitty? <laughs> it's not as good as copycat. <laughs> Alliterations are always much better. Oh, uh, this is, uh, they're not really talking animals, but they are anthropomorphic in a way, and it um, celebrates the year of the tiger.
have to say I take a little umbrage with that commercial in the sense that that Coke never blew up in the other tiger's face despite all the yeah. rounds. Yeah. Okay. Fizzy. Last but not least, Bill Murray, Groundhog Day, Jeep. Here we go. Okay, campers, rise and shine. It's Groundhog Day. And don't oh, forget no. your booties because it's cold oh, today. Phil? Hey, Phil? No, not you. It's me, Ned Ryerson. Okay, little fella. Good job. That's different. Good job. Hey! <laughs> Fail? Hey, you're gonna freeze to death. Who cares? See you tomorrow. Safety first. Yeah. He got the ground horn, Phil! It's not personal. It's just a game. Not a bad day, huh? I don't know where we parked. I was following you. If Bill Murray appears on a screen, you are instant. I find I'm instantly mesmerized. I don't know why. Because he's the greatest. Perhaps. That's all the time we have tonight. Thank you for joining us. I am off all next week. What? Uh, sorry, this is how I tell you. So an early Enjoy. happy lunar new year to An you. email would have been nice. Okay, well, I'm telling you now. Oh, okay. <laughs>